May, something like that. So you can go and listen to the second half of the audio that's entitled probably Introduction if you want to uh, you know, get a little bit more information about what we're going for here. And I'm going to kind of recap that just in a moment. But again, the idea is that we're going to be talking through uh, just the idea of apologetics. I thought about teaching a class, a morning class on this, but decided against it. And so, again, I really want this to be a time uh, that we are kind of going back and forth and talking about things interactively. If you have questions, you have thoughts, you can always interrupt me. Uh, I'm going to go uh, through my next five weeks and kind of, uh, you know, try to bring some ideas that are really high level down to really practical advice on what it looks like to really talk about uh, the gospel of Christ with people who really aren't, you know, uh, very aware of it or uh, don't have a really good or full understanding of what it is. But I'll remind you of something that Willie said a few weeks ago that's very important. C.S. Lewis says this much uh, when he says that anybody who can't explain the gospel in plain language is confused himself. And that is that apologetics is, it's kind of like service, I guess, in that sense. You often find that when you get into it and you begin to really train and develop skills, you help yourself out first, most. That doesn't really make sense, but you know what I mean. Um, Apologetics helps you think through the ideas that you have or thought you had uh, in order to be able to articulate that in ways that are very helpful for people, helpful for yourself. And so... Um, hopefully as we talk about this, this isn't just about, oh, well, this is something I need to sign up for, you know, to do, more do, more, more service, more work. Um, but that will really help you get you thinking through what is it that you truly believe uh, and, uh, you know, what does that say ultimately about the God that you uh, profess to serve. So, anyway, we're going to be talking about apologetics. What does apologetics mean? It has a lot of different definitions. Um, we're not going to really go much into them, no need to. The basic idea is often articulated as it's a defense of faith, as if someone is, is art, uh, attacking faith. Problem is, at least in its original form, uh, it had nothing to do with defending faith. It had everything to do uh, with putting into words difficult concepts so that everybody could understand them. And that's as simple as it is, and that's really what we're going to try to do is uh, take some of these really complex ideas, uh, both about apologetics and about faith in general, and distill them down into uh, some basic images and, uh, and ideas and concepts, and you'll see how, how it goes. So let me really quickly run over, and you might want to write some of these things down so you can go back and ponder them and think through them. Uh, but this was the introduction that I gave uh, a month ago, and I talked about how let me see if I can find it, that I remember the main point that I was making, and that's that apologetics is no more difficult uh, in our day and age uh, than it has been really ever. We have a tendency to think that things are more or less difficult, and we often think that so that we can make excuses for why we do or don't or whatever else. But postmodernism, which is a philosophy that a lot of you maybe unknowingly embrace, Okay, without going too much into philosophy, that is just a, as fertile a field as any other human philosophy that's come down the pipe in terms of being able to share the gospel with people. Uh, the key for us is unlocking the specific tools and ideas and methods that we need to be able to present Jesus in a way that's clear to people who are listening to us. And clear, of course, in our own mind. And so I mentioned this, that it's, it's just as fertile a field. What do I mean by postmodernism? Well, the easiest definition is it's after modernism. 
And if there's maybe one really quick way to sum this up, modernism just believes that we can prove everything scientifically and through knowledge. Postmodernism is a reaction to that theory and says there's really nothing we can, uh, pr- pr- nothing of value that we can prove through scientific uh, theories and rationalism. So we ought to just land on our own experience and take our own experience as gospel truth. Easiest, simplest definition of both of those two things. Most of us live in a day and age, particularly among millennials, where postmodernism is a more dominant way of thinking. It impacts and affects the way we think about our life more so than modernism. Whereas maybe 60, 70, 80 years ago, uh, society was a little bit more modernistic. Now, there's all kinds of arguments about when this started and you know, how it impacts us, and that's not the goal for us to try to talk through that thing. But I did mention that, that with that knowledge that postmodernism... Uh, is kind of a, um, a major societal framework or paradigm to think through today. That there are sort of two different ways of approaching apologetics, both inductive and deductive reasoning. And by the way, any of you who've taken a basic logic class or if you've done statistics or something, maybe at the very beginning of the semester, they would have gone through how both deductive and inductive learning is important for uh, just understanding science, understanding truth. Okay? But I, I suggested to you a month or uh, two ago that inductive reasoning is now a much better method to reason with people in regard to the gospel than deductive reasoning. Now, what I mean by that is inductive, and so let me go back through this, although I did post on the Facebook page some videos. One was a cat video, the other was a cartoon video that helped explain inductive versus deductive reasoning. All right? Deductive reasoning is that modern mindset where I start with a large idea, a hypothesis, a theory, and then I begin to prove small aspects of that until I've come down to sort of the smallest point where I can say, without a doubt, I know this is true. Okay? One of the reasons this is such a hard thing uh, to argue is that you have to kind of start with all the assumptions that were made before that. If you start with the theory, uh, excuse me, the actual uh, end goal of that deductive thinking, it's going to be hard because that's the thing that sort of ultimately came out of all of this, all right? Now, inductive reasoning uh, is in some ways the opposite. You say, I have an experience of something, and this for me is true, and therefore I'm going to move out from that specific experience and just say that experience must apply to all of these other things, all right? Well, most people live based on that way of thinking, inductive reasoning. I have these experiences, and therefore these experiences must apply to all of these other big things in life. And so I'm going to come up with theories about life based on my own individual experiences. Okay? And there's a lot of interpretation and symbols. And in in research, these are roughly overlapped by qualitative and quantitative research. Okay? But, eh, another conversation. So, either way... We're going to just uh, uh, assume that inductive reasoning and inductive methods are much more important uh, today than deductive methods with most people. But inductive methods are really great because you can propose all kinds of hypotheticals without necessarily proving any of them. All you have to do is just try to help people see how this could correlate with their own experience. And the gospel is chock full of Jesus' statements about here's life, here's how it is, you connect with this. One of the passages that we're going to read today, uh, he basically just says, anybody who hears the voice of truth will hear my voice. He's throwing it out there. It's a very deduct, inductive way of thinking about the world. 
not deductive, not proving it, not trying to, you know, say, well, this is for sure uh, without a doubt. So, I talked about how with inductive reasoning, there's a, a greater importance on image and narrative because we connect more with image and narrative than we do with science and theories and hypotheses. And so, with, with postmodernism, we care a lot about images and narratives and stories and uh, things that are presented to us. I mean, some of you, I don't understand your humor at all anymore. I used to think I was decently a funny person until I get on Facebook and try to understand 90% of the memes that people post. <laughs> which I just don't know what's happening. Um, okay, well... That's partly because maybe I'm getting a tiny bit too old to understand some of the common, you know, forms of, of humor. Or maybe I just am not funny. I don't know. Um, but these are images. Images that are shorthand. Now, with postmodernism, a lot of young people, they don't have attention span anymore. And we think that is a negative thing. And maybe it is to some degree. But people pick up on stuff really quickly. Okay. And they see things and agree on things and interpret things, sometimes very differently, no doubt. Uh, but, uh, and, and that's kind of the, the way that we find meaning and truth uh, in our lives and in our world. Uh, I'll give you a, a quote that I gave you last time from Tolkien. It just says, knowledge is the organ of truth. Uh, so knowledge is the organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. And knowledge is the organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. And arguably, if you ask young people uh, sort of what they're more interested in, although you usually have to use different terms than this, more people are interested in finding meaning for their life than some sort of truth that's out there. The whole idea of finding truth is a modern type pursuit. What's true? What's right? What's accurate? Whereas finding meaning okay, and purpose is much more a hallmark of the postmodern mindset. And then Pascal's statement uh, from way back when that the heart has reasons the mind can't understand. So heart has reasons that the mind can't understand. All right. So let's talk about this today in the context of uh, orthodoxy and heresy. And this is a class that I teach for the interns. Uh, and so some of you have kind of already heard some of this, but I'm going to make it somewhat brief. And the way that I've tried to approach this, um, this next five weeks is to take a, uh, I guess it's kind of a framework or a structure that I feel really comfortable with. And it comes out of a book written in the 1950s, um, and uh, it's called Christ and Culture. Some of you have heard of this before. I even taught a class on it a little uh, while back. I wouldn't actually recommend reading the book. I'd recommend reading the Christianity Today article that I'll post on Facebook later today because it sums up the book in about three pages and you're postmodernist, right? So you don't want to actually have to read the book. You just want some images and then you can move on. So that's what Christianity Today will do for you and I think it does it somewhat effectively, all right? And so over the next five weeks, I'm going to use these, what he calls typologies, and talk a little bit about how they can be both effective and ineffective in our mindset uh, when it comes to apologetics, all right? And, uh, you know, apologetics is a lot like prayer for those of you reading William Bloom's book. You're not going to learn how to be an apologist from hearing other people talk about being an apologist. You're going to learn by going out and being an apologist, having lots of conversations with people uh, who are not Christian, who are quasi-Christian about faith. You're just going to learn more that way. 
you're not going to learn really much of anything uh, that's helpful up here. You're going to learn most of it in the field, so to speak, all right? And one of the biggest commitments that some of us need to make is we just need to talk to more people who aren't Christian about faith. Yeah, it's as simple as that. It's the same commitment that we make when, in regard to prayer, is just pray. <laughs> when I talk about prayer, when I feel guilty about prayer, just pray. That's the starting place. In the same way that the starting place for apologetics is just to go out and ask questions and start talking to people who uh, are not Christian or, again, quasi-Christian or whatever that is, however you want to define that, about faith. And like any good student, hopefully, if you haven't been doing much of this, you're going to start with a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. And you're going to ask people questions. And at the end of, of each of these uh, sermon series, I'm going to try my best to give you a question that I think you can use. You might have to adapt it. You might have to think through it. Uh, but I think it's a helpful question, a question that I've asked before uh, that opens up a conversation. Okay? So this first uh, typology, and there's five, and you know, it's not that you need to memorize this. I just think this is kind of helpful, particularly for looking at Jesus and his life and how he interacted with different people who uh, weren't orthodox, uh, uh, so to speak. Okay? The first one is Christ against culture. And this says that you know, culture ought, is sort of the birthplace of sin, okay? And, you know, these people generally ignore the own sin they have in their own lives, which is sort of a downside of the whole Christ against culture typology, and try to place the source of sin in culture itself. And so as you can imagine, they're very much uh, into distancing themselves from culture. So whether you think of this as Amish or the uh, Quakers or the Qumran community or fundamentalists today, uh, culture is bad, and we need to get as far away from that as we can. All right? So that's one typology. The second one is Christ of culture. This is swinging to the other end of the spectrum where, you know what? Jesus is working directly through our culture and most of the values that culture has are good values and we just ought to work within our culture uh, to really figure this stuff out. So kind of the swing to the opposite end here. All right? And there's a um, a bringing together or a melding of culture and Christianity as being almost one and the same. And then there's three mediating perspectives in the middle here. And I'm going to talk about these each week. So it's not like you've got to memorize all these or write them all down. Christ against culture on one side. Christ of culture on one side. And then these three mediating perspectives. These three middle perspectives. On the one hand is Christ transforming culture. This is where Christians intentionally must be involved in the major institutions of society so as to bring about God's transforming power on earth. It's their responsibility. They should be doctors and lawyers and academics and politicians and they're going to bring about, all right, uh, you know, God's renewal of the earth. All right? And then we've got Christ above culture, which is slightly different than of culture, which just simply means that, you know, uh, humans have great and wonderful ideas and ideas that God himself has given them, but no human is possibly going to come up with a godly idea on their own. They must understand the truth of the gospel to really wash or redeem the ideas and beliefs that they have. Okay? And so we can work closely with culture, but at the end of the day, culture isn't going to accomplish anything good on its own apart from the Christian church and community. Okay? And then in the middle, they have kind of a cop-out one that he never really explains much, but just you got to have a middle, you know? And it's Christ and culture and paradox. 
right? There's just this constant pushing and pulling and tension, and what are we going to do with it? We don't know, uh, and blah, blah, blah. So I want to talk about, what, go ahead. Can you have a what? Christ and culture and paradox. Yeah, so, yeah, tension on both sides. So Christ against culture is what I want to talk about a little bit today. Real pretty briefly. Because I think one of the biggest issues we have when it comes to thinking about how to talk to people about faith is we're worried that we might say something wrong. Alright? Maybe we believe something that's wrong. Okay? Maybe we're letting them get away with a wrong idea and not immediately countering it. Now some of this comes out of the modernistic movement. One of the real disappointing things about our definition of truth is that it's incredibly narrow. Oh yeah, I forgot my PowerPoints. Frank, Frank doesn't want to show my PowerPoints because he feels like they elevate our visual expectations as a church to a whole new level. And he feels like if we start with that, then every person who teaches after me is going to have to... uh, That's the wrong light. I'm too lazy to go all the way over there to that one. All right. My PowerPoint. Yes. Feast upon the kindergarten level PowerPoint skills that I have. All right. So, modern tools in a postmodern context. For those of you who don't know, I figured I could teach a quick, you know, handy lesson here too. Uh, The left side is a flat head screwdriver, right? Flat head. Yeah. You guys would be surprised, okay? I'm not going to name any names in specific, but when I ask for a screwdriver and I say, I need a Phillips head, is that the flat one or the other one, you know? Um, Phillips starts with four, okay? So four, yeah? (laughs) Some of you are like, ah, no, that's not good. So, modern tools in a postmodern context. If we're using deductive reasoning with people who are primarily postmodern, we're trying to use a, a... a Phillips head screwdriver on a screw that's a flathead screw. Good luck with that. Now, actually, you can do it the other way around on a lot of screws. So some of you are thinking that. I'm not going to talk about that, all right? Just use my example here. However it is, you're not going to be able to undo a flathead screw with a Phillips head screwdriver. It's not going to work. Well, that's a lot of why we have anxiety when it comes to to apologetics is because we've been taught a lot of modernistic methods for apologetics. Teach people that their beliefs are wrong. You know, paint them into a corner so that they can see that, you know, what what they think doesn't make sense. Pressure them to, you know, make a decision so they can see that their hypothesis is wrong. And on goes the list of different modern methods. And you know what? We've become so good at uh, dealing with modernistic objections and claims that I think that's part of the main reason we don't want to move on to apologetics in a postmodern context. We've gotten so good at the old way of doing things. The problem is the people who are left, who really uh, you know, see faith as, or, or see modern uh, objections as a roadblock to faith, aren't near as plentiful. So we're using the wrong methods. And no wonder that brings up a lot of anxiety uh, you know, within us. And we've got to be very, very careful with that. One of the biggest issues that I'm going to, uh, I think, you know, say to the church as a whole is the church as an institution, like any institution, is a little bit stuck in the past. 
And one of the main reasons we're stuck in the past is because we have control in the past. We can look in the past and see here are the things that we've done. Here are the things that we've come up with. Here are our arguments. Here are our ideas. We've got it straight. Now we're in control of any, any objections, any problems we may have. But when we don't step out in faith and say, hey, God is just as much a God of this postmodern you know, movement and generation as he, as he was in the modern, and he's going to tell us and teach us how to speak the gospel in words that our culture understands, then we're stuck with old ways of thinking that put us back into control. And if history is any example of this, the church has often gotten so stuck in the past that it's missed out on really great new movements in society uh, and in culture. And that's, that's a problem. That's an issue for us. And I think it's an issue when it comes to this, uh, this idea of modernism and postmodernism. All right, so Christ against culture. <clears throat> I think about Jesus saying, you turn my father's house into a den of thieves. Certainly in this instance, Jesus was against this cultural uh, buildup of economic gain around the temple life. Let's gain something, get something. We'll push out the influence of the poor who just want to come and, you know, and uh, profess their faith and we'll, we'll attract people who can actually afford some of these more expensive sacrifices and things like that. And we won't go too much on that passage, but I definitely think this is an example of a time where Jesus felt it necessary to rail against the culture of his day. All right? And one of the main things uh, that you see in that passage is that Jesus has an orthodox view, a, a hard and fast view that the temple of God should be first a place where everybody equally comes to God to worship. And any other motivations, whether it's financial or social, ought to be thrown aside. And that's huge. That's so important. Particularly in a day and age where our churches often look exactly like our societies. We have rich churches and poor churches and, you know, churches that are interested in this thing and that thing and they attract people who are basically uh, similar. And they have all kinds of uh, incentives and motivations that are apart from um, being able to come to God and worship him uh, equally. So uh, certainly there's a, a, a place for this. But I think the downside of the Christ against culture motivation is that we often deflect, as Paul would say uh, when he was talking to his church in Corinth, the blame for our state, our issues, our sins, away from us and onto all of those bad people who are outside of us. You know, when Paul addresses the church for this guy who's dating his, I don't even really understand, I guess his stepmom or sleeping with her, and the church is like, look at us, we got some grace, am I right? And Paul's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? You've got this all wrong. Who are we to judge those outside the church? But you better believe you better judge those people inside. It's the same idea. We deflect, I think, a lot of times. And that's our, our sort of first way to feel good about our uh, uh, shortcomings and our missteps is if we can just look at how much worse people are outside, we'll have a good sense of our own value and worth and dignity. But that's not at all the kind of motivation uh, that Jesus taught his disciples how to have. 
So it comes back to this idea uh, that we're not going to be really go into much, but I'll just sort of say it as an aside thought of orthodoxy and heresy. When we have an idea that here is what we ought to believe, and anybody who do- doesn't believe that is wrong, okay, then we're often acting as if Christ mainly came here to be against our culture. To speak bad about our culture, to denigrate our culture, to if we can just stay away from our cultural influence, uh, we'll be fine. But of course the problem with that is our cultural influence is inbuilt within us. It's a sin problem, not a culture problem. So no matter where we go, no matter how close-knit we are apart from the evils of culture, we're going to imitate and mirror uh, human issues and human sins that have been around us for a long time. So... This emphasis on orthodoxy and heresy uh, ultimately comes back to, in my mind, my second slide, which is brilliant. Um, I couldn't figure out how to turn truth upside down. But it works for my favor here, okay? Because when our truth is that narrow, it is upside down. (laughs) All right? Um, I have this conversation that's pretty repetitive with both Christians and non-Christians. And it goes to something a little bit like this. You know, you talked about this religion or that religion as having truths or aspects of truth uh, in them. But how can that be possible if, if Christianity or Jesus is the one universal truth? And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had like that. And I try to shut them down as quickly as I can, but it's very hard. One of the things that I've noticed is what a lot of Christians in particular are talking about when they talk about this word truth, is something very different than what the biblical authors and Jesus himself was talking about when he used the term truth. And one of the real issues we have because of this modern mindset, because of this Christ against culture tendency in Christianity, because of this focus on orthodoxy and heresy, is to describe and define truth as a notional correctness. Meaning that if, if my notions and ideas are right about the world, then I understand the truth. Okay? Now, many of us think this is just, yeah, it's what we've got to believe, right? We've got to believe these certain notions, these certain ideas, that's what truth is. Oh, absolutely not. That's what modernism says truth is. Uh, abstractions and ideas and a set of, of dogmas that we must believe And a lot of Americans have just, or American Christians in particular, have just accepted that as that's what truth is. Well, I want to remind you of something. Go back to Jesus talking to Pilate. Okay? Where in the Message Bible, Jesus simply says, anybody who recognizes my voice, recognizes the voice of truth. This is the same person that earlier on said that he was the truth and the life. And Pilate's question to him is, what is truth? Okay, you're defining truth in a really, really weird relational way. So what do you mean by that? Jesus never responds, or at least we don't have the response recorded for us. So let me give you three varying perspectives uh, on this word truth, okay? And they just come directly from our Bible. So kind of take our idea, our narrow understanding of truth, put it aside for a moment as notional correctness, meaning uh, ideas that I know are right or, or true or accurate. And I want to give you three different definitions of truth directly from our scripture. One is the Hebrew version of truth. 
which always meant to trust in something. And in particular, to trust in God. So when the Hebrews used the word truth, go back and look at, uh, uh, you know, you could just type in something as simple as truth or true in the Hebrew Bible uh, and watch, okay, how many times this is in reference to trusting God doing something. Not a set of beliefs or, or propositions or a statement of facts, but as a trust in someone who himself is true, reliable, and faithful. Sounds a lot like Jesus saying, I am the truth, or saying that when people recognize my voice, they'll know the truth. The Greek word for truth, which Paul uses a lot throughout his letters, which meant unveiling people's, uh, or unveiling this sort of hidden world, opening people's eyes to things that they had never seen or understood around them. That was their main idea for truth. Remember the shadows, remember Plato, remember you know, all these ideas that there's this world beyond our world uh, or it's beside it or whatever else and that, that our eyes are simply clouded to these things that are true. And then towards the end of Paul's ministry, as he goes to Rome, you see this new definition of truth coming out uh, in, in his interactions with the magistrates and officials. And the way Paul begins to define truth to the Romans, which is how the Romans generally thought about truth, was an evidenced account of events. A full story of what actually happened. Now we could go into each one of these points and dive in and talk a lot about how, you know, those are just as true in definitions of truth. The point I'm trying to make is that the definition of truth that we've often accepted makes it very difficult for us to talk to people about faith. Because if we're trying to convince them that these propositions, these notions that I have are all exactly true, and if you don't sign up for them, you, po- you can't possibly get on board, we're in trouble from the get-go. <laughs> not only because that's not how Jesus defines truth, but because even just these three other ways of thinking about truth are so much more profound and robust than our own idea. Uh, we're going to get into some trouble there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's sort of e- evidencing um, or accounting of all the events that have taken place. So the Roman idea of truth is actually the exact same word tra- you know, we use now when you swear on a Bible in a court of law. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That came directly from the Roman legal system. Saying that you're going to tell everything you know and not lie about anything. Because that's their idea of truth was an an entire account or witness. Think about how many times Jesus and his apostles talks about we're just telling you what we saw. There's evidencing to you. All the truth that we experienced. And in that sense, truth is a little bit more akin to, to you know, reality or the word reality than it is true in the moral uh, sense that we often take that word. Okay? So, uh, you know, wor- words matter. And uh, this constant focus on getting people to believe certain, uh, you know, propositions or notions is going to really get us into a lot of trouble. But just think about how many doors are open when our idea of truth is about learning how to trust God. Here's how in my life I have learned how to trust God. Here's how he's proven true to me. Jesus says so much in John 7. You don't believe me? Do what I say. See if I'm true or not. 
I'm not here to gain my own honor. I'm here to gain the honor of the Father. Try it out. See what happens. I mean, this is what he says in John 7. Very much invites people to try it out. And in that sense, I think it's very much like a postmodern mindset, which is, I'm going to do what's useful to me. Guys, postmodern people aren't usually asking what's right and true. They're asking what's useful. What's useful to me? Now, that may seem pessimistic and incredibly practical, uh, but it is the question that a lot of postmodern folks are using. And that's why there's so much of a resurgence of Eastern philosophies and weird like energy crystals and energy rocks that many of us think of as so silly. But if it works, it works. And so I'm not going to sit back and think all day long whether this makes sense or is right or whatever else. It works for me, so I'm going with it. For better or for worse. But trust in God. I mean, that, that, that's a great one. Revealing things that, that are hidden, that I was never able to see before about the world. What if? The what if questions are the great questions for postmodern audiences. What if this was true? Can you describe? Can you think? Can you imagine? Can you be a part of a story that may be a different story than the story you think you're a part of now? That may be written in a different way with an alternate ending or whatever else. There's huge possibility there. And so uh, we're going to have to kind of overcome this, uh, this you know, modern mindset that the truth is notional correctness and, and recognize that the truth is far uh, more robust than that. When Jesus tells us that he is the truth, he's saying a whole lot of things, things that we can't even begin to, to understand unless we've really thought about it and considered it. So I want to kind of give you an activity that you can do on your own. And um, I think it's a great activity. I, I learned this activity from Alistair McGrath uh, in one of apologetic sermons that, uh, that he does. Uh, well, I think it's just a great one. And he just talks about having, taking two or three words. And I'm going to give you two today that I think are really important. That's salvation and sin. Taking these words, words that in their, their modern context were simply pulled from modern day language. Okay and given spiritual significance. Okay, it's really uh, not only disastrous, but, but I think a little bit shameful when Christians try to take words, um, either old words, and then revive them, even though no one knows what they're talking about, or try to take popular, you know, kind of Christian, uh, or popular uh, media type stuff, and then just switch around the words, or switch around... I'm going to make an, an illustration here that I think is really probably not great. Um, but there's not that many kids in here. But I've always thought when Christians take movie titles and popular media and then just switch them a little bit and make them Christian, that's not a whole lot different than the porn industry and what they do with movie titles. I mean, they're funny. The porn industry has some really funny titles. Let's be real. Not that I... Okay. But... It's really what Christians often do. It's not taking modern words that people are using and being creative with them. It's taking someone else's creativity and taking a shortcut uh, and then sort of riding on those coattails. It, really weird. But Jesus and, uh, you know, and Paul both had an ability to take common everyday language and imbue it with a lot of meaning. And so, you know, you talk about the sin word that we use as just simply missing the mark. 
Okay, we have this technical, you know, definition for sin that we have to make sure that everybody understands completely if they're going to be saved. And is that right? Sure. But how many of us really understood or even understand now the full extent of what sin really is in our lives? I mean, sure, there's some things we ought to teach people. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. But when we emphasize some correct way of understanding sin and don't look at Jesus who uses all kinds of illustrations and images for sin. It's not the sick or healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I mean, you think about the the variety of different images he uses. So salvation and sin, I want you to think about uh, stories, movies, um, it could be scenes, it could be just different words that illustrate to you in your vernacular what salvation and sin really are. Because a lot of people don't connect with those two words anymore. Particularly sin when, at the end of the day, most everything that I do wrong is either a mistake, a personality flaw, something I'm addicted to. There's not a lot of culpability or or guilt uh, that we naturally feel for these things that we do wrong. I mean, it's true that we, we can feel guilty, and, and I think a lot of the guilty is more insecurity than it is guilt for doing any actions wrong. But I want you to rethink this week, and I want to share that at the beginning of the sermon next week. Okay? Just your ideas, whether it's a movie scene, a thought, a, uh, an idea uh, that for you encapsulates even this, the, this word of salvation or this word uh, of sin in a way that really could connect with someone who's not a Christian and doesn't have the kind of Christian lineage or understanding of these words. All right? <clears throat> I wrote down a couple that the, the scripture uses. Mistake, illness, addiction for sin, salvation, wholeness, wellness, and freedom. These are just words. I think it's much better when you can really think about images or stories or whatever that encapsulate these ideas because they're such uh, powerful and, and complex ideas and thoughts. Okay? So do that and we'll start with that next week. So here's the question that... Uh, that I want to leave you with. And this is a question that, that I've asked before in a variety of different ways. And it starts some pretty good conversation. And I certainly encourage you to think through this and maybe even possibly ask this or kind of ask your own question. Um, Alistair McGrath in his um, apologetics uh, seminar that he does has sort of five starting places with people that are really natural. And I like them. I think they make sense. And the first one is that the world is an ordered place or at least should be an ordered place. All right? Uh, and that when things are out of order, we recognize it and we wonder why is it out of order. Whether it's the physical world, whatever. And so one of the things that, uh, the questions that, that I have, and I'll try to write this up on the, uh, the website as well, is the world seems to be so chaotic and disordered. Sort of like our own lives sometimes. Assuming a good God did exist, how do you think he'd work in the world? Or in us. You could phrase that either way. Work in us, work in the world. So the, the world seems to be chaotic and disordered, uh, sort of like our own life sometimes. If a God did exist, how do you think he would work in our world or work in us? And that might not be a good question for you. It might not be something that you really think connects with the audience that you spend most of your time around. And certainly you can rewrite that or rethink it. The point, though, is to come up with and start talking about this idea of salvation and sin uh, in a way that uh, invites people uh, in rather than sort of forces uh, them to accept something that I believe is, is notionally true. One of the, uh, 
the things that can be very helpful you know, as a response to that conversation is to look at some of the I am passages. Jesus says he is a lot of things, all right? And so sometimes uh, following up in conversations with, here's one of the things that Jesus says he is, highlight some of the things that, uh, that uh, I usually talk about with people in that conversation. So he said, okay, he'd work this way. Well, actually, Jesus says he does work this way. What do you think the world would be like uh, if Jesus truly was the light of the world? What would that even look like? What would that mean? Uh, how would that work? And again, you're going to have to kind of, I'm, I'm giving you just a really basic, uh, what I think is sort of a framework for this um, that you're going to have to apply and think through. If there's one thing, particularly in a postmodern context, that uh, we have to realize when it comes to apologetics is that you can't just take other people's ideas and run with them usually. You're going to have a specific audience. And more often times than not, while in the modern mindset, when you prepare for an argument, you prepare for a debate, your preparation communicates how knowledgeable you are. Postmodernism, it's the exact opposite. The more salesman-like and prepackaged you are, the less people trust you. It's much better to stumble over your words and stumble over your narrative and your understanding and show that you're a normal person than it is to come with some prepackaged response that seems fake and rehearsed. And that's just important. So any of the things that we talked about, any of the questions that we use, part of the excitement of apologetics is that you get to kind of frame these uh, in your own context for your own audience and you get to understand you know, uh, more deeply what people really think and feel and appreciate people's integrity and kind of start with them there. One of the images that keep came in, uh, keep, keep come, kept, there we go, coming through my mind, I watched this on July 4th, I don't watch very many movies, but for some reason this movie, I liked it a lot. It's basically like the science fiction version of Groundhog Day. Um, I don't know if you, and it's probably the only movies that I can stand Tom Cruise in, but it's called The Edge of Tomorrow. And I, I really like the, the themes of both movies because the themes of both movies are ultimately if you only got the chance to redo your life over and over and over and over again, finally you'd realize both how bad you are <laughs> and you would possibly rise to the challenge of being somebody who's noble and good. And I, I just like that idea because I think that, that when I think about the Holy Spirit's influence on in our life, that's ultimately what's happening is the Spirit... We don't just move through life with some lack of knowledge or understanding of the world around us. He makes us relive our lives and our moments of the day so that, number one, first we can be convicted of sin and recognize just how much we are in need of God, uh, but also recognize just how much the Spirit progresses forward in our lives and turns us into someone that we wouldn't even recognize 10 or 15 uh, years down the road. Um, and I just, I don't know, that just image sticks with me, and, uh, and I think it's a good one. Yep. You could do that. You could come up with a word. You could, I mean, it's really whatever you want to do. It doesn't have to be like we all have to come with our amazingly impressive PowerPoint, because uh, that would be hard to one-up, you know? Um, so I don't want to set you guys up for failure from the get-go, you know? Um, so you might just want to start lower. Yeah, like a lower bar. Right. Yeah. All right. So yeah, you can do a, a, a movie that's quick to explain, an idea, a moment in your life, whatever it is, guys. Uh, these are all powerful tools. We're going to have to kind of come up with these as we go each week uh, and talking about them uh, so as to, uh, you know, just to brainstorm and be thinking about this. Saturday, yeah. Like I do, always. No. No, definitely not five minutes before. 
Always on Saturday, like I do. Uh, or earlier on Friday, like I do. Any questions or kind of closing thoughts uh, before we uh, join together and do communion? Yeah, Tony. Uh, yeah, I basically just ask in such a chaotic and disordered world, you know, or, it, or you know, in a world that's like that, um, our, our lives often seem the same way. You know, if God did exist, how do you think he'd work? In us, in the world. It's an interesting question because it opens up a conversation about how God does work. And I think that's what a lot of people are wondering is, well, it doesn't seem like he does. When you challenge them to think of a better way than what God has already revealed, it's challenging. It just is. It's a great conversation. Any others? Thoughts? Questions? Yeah, Willie. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.